Well, good morning. Was it uh, my my wife and my three of my children actually with my. Uh, wife's sister in Colorado Springs, and so it's just myself and Andrew kind of batching it, and yeah, yeah we're having a good time, man, the place is trash, but we're having a wonderful time, junk food and videos, man, we, yeah, it's a blast, don't tell Teresa, um, well, on the way over, you know, I said, well, you know, I don't know, I'm struggling a little bit, we were talking about the sermon, and Andrew said, well, Dad, I really don't care what you say, just get done on time, okay, that's all that matters. So we got the we got the values set here. We know which way we, we got to go with this thing. Well, we've been uh, looking at the probably the most famous prayer in the Christian church and church history. As a matter of fact, you know, we found a um, book. It's called the Didache. It was written in 100 A.D. It lists this prayer in it as part of the church's liturgy. When the, the Roman Church began around 325, um, the, this prayer has been uh, prominent in its liturgy. When the Orthodox Church was formalized in 1000 AD, this prayer moved its way top rung of their liturgy as well. When you had Lutheranism start in Germany and the Reformed Church start in Switzerland and Anglicans start in England during the Reformation, this, this prayer became a huge part of the way they did church as well. As a matter of fact, this, this prayer is one of those threads that ties believers together all over the world from all ages. There's never been a portion of scripture more quoted, more loved than this prayer we're talking about, the Lord's Prayer. And anything with that kind of familiarity, uh, we have a, a propensity to lose what it really meant, what it was really saying. We do know that that while it's fine to quote the Lord's Prayer, that's not why Jesus gave it to us, because we know this, because in Luke, he says the same prayer, but he gets all the words messed up. If it's uh, if he's supposed to say it verbatim, he, he, he changes things a little bit. Uh, matter of fact, in our passage before us, he says that you, this is how you should pray, not what you should pray. Now, you, you need to know, at the time when Jesus was here, prayer had become a huge, formalized, major thing. They didn't have a lot of informal prayer, or some, but they had formalized prayers for just about every situation and occasion you can think of. The rabbis were just so afraid that we would pray, people would pray something wrong, and so they had Formalized prayers prescriptive for when you saw the sun come up. You had different prayers for when you saw the sun come down. You had other prayers that you needed to pray at noon. You had prayers if you received new furniture. You had prayers you had to pray that you know, when it was raining. But different prayers if when it was storming. You know, when somebody died and somebody was born. Prayers for every occasion you can imagine. And you can imagine the poor disciples, these guys are working, you know, 70 hours a week trying to make a living, and they got to figure out, okay, now what prayer am I supposed to say on this one? And what do you do if you're praying the rain prayer, and all of a sudden it starts to storm on you? Oh, well, you got to switch it halfway. Or what if you get it wrong and you say the, the dying prayer when the thing's baby's born? I mean, that, what, what happens with that? I don't know what goes on with that. But, but the whole prayer industry was just a burden. It was nothing you looked forward to. It was nothing that was fun. But when Jesus' disciples watched Jesus pray, it looked like things were a little bit different. And they said, Jesus, you know, we're, we're living our life on a horizontal plane, but we watch you. You sneak away. It's almost like you are connected with heaven. And, 
it's almost like you get strength from your connection there to live down here. And you're able to, down here is just an overflow of, of your connection there. Jesus, would you teach us how to do that? Because prayer is not fun. You teach us how to do that. And Jesus says, okay. And so he starts walking us through the most famous prayer. He says, this is how you're supposed to pray. This is how you start. Our Father, and we mentioned this several weeks ago, that this was unheard of. There's no Jewish prayer written that addresses God as Father until the 10th century. This was like blasphemous kind of thing. Uh, Our Father? Because Jesus had just said, comparing them and saying, don't think you're going to be heard because you've got the right prescribed prayer all set. You've got all the words right. That's not how you connect. You connect by your identity, not by your performance. And how many people we know, they're going to get their way to God because they've earned it, because they're good, because they're doing well, because they're nailing it, because they've got victory here, there, and the other place. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. not by your performance, by your identity. If you know him as Father... That's how you start. And then he's going to give us, in the Lord's Prayer, six different petitions. They're all petitions. And the first one is, hallowed be thy name. We went over this last week. And right before that, he says, pray our Father in heaven. Reminding them that there's, there's closeness, there's love, but there's transcendence. He's in heaven. He says, before you ask for a thing, before you ask for forgiveness, before you go through anything else, you've got to keep in mind God's majesty, God's power, God's bigness. Because if you don't get that right, everything else is going to be a mess. And then he, he, he leads us in the second and third petition of the prayer, where he says, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That on earth as it is in heaven, that can really be attached to each of those top three petitions. Hallowed be your name on, on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But with this, what Jesus does with these two, is he strikes at the greatest danger of 21st century Western, maybe American, prayer. And and what he says is, before you ask for stuff, we're going to get to the ask for stuff portion. Don't worry about it. But before you do that, first order of, of, of prayer is praise. The second order is submission. He says, before you ask for things, you need to recognize his will. Now, this is where we fail, and this is maybe I'll speak for myself with this one. Often prayer is lobbying God, right? We're going to try to bend God's will to our will. We're going to try to convince him how important this thing is and how he really needs to work here. We're going to kind of bend his will to fit our will. But actually prayer is bending our will to fit his And so Jesus says, when you come, before you ask anything, you need to abandon your agenda. And this makes sense, right? If, in fact, we started with praise, not just words, but we truly recognize that this is God. This is God. And he's everywhere. And he loves us. And he's all-powerful. And he knows everything. Of course, I would say, you know, I'm going to ask for stuff. But you're you're God. And I, I want what's right. And so you do what you need to do. Jesus says, yeah, that's how it has to start. And so, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. This this kingdom thing. How do you? Now, this is, this is important. We're going to unpack this this morning. This is going to be a little bit different. This is going to be like a biblical theology class for a few moments. Don't go to sleep and say, you know, wake me up when he tells a funny story. Forget that for a minute. You, you put the dots together with me, okay? Because this is pretty important. Because the kingdom was central 
to Jesus' mission. It was huge. You know, the word church appears in the New Testament 120 times. Kingdom appears 180 times. It was, it was paramount to what Jesus was about. But Jesus doesn't give us a list saying that when I talk about kingdom, you guys, this is what I mean, A, B, C, D. He doesn't say that. Instead, he paints pictures and he gives us metaphors and similes through parables. He says the kingdom of heaven is like a big net. And it was thrown out and it caught fish, some good and some not so good. And we got to figure out who's who. The kingdom of, of, of God is like a landowner. And he hired different people to work his fields and at different times. But then he paid them all the same. And the kingdom of heaven is like a field, but there's a treasure in it. And the wise person will go, go liquidate all their assets to buy this, this field. And the kingdom of heaven is like yeast. And it works its way, you don't know how, but pervasively through the whole lump. And it affects everything. And it's like a mustard seed. And, and it grows into a big plant. And... And, and then Jesus says straight out comments about the kingdom. He says that it's harder for a, for a rich man to get into the, the kingdom of God than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And he says that uh, unless you have faith like a little child, you're not getting in the kingdom. And he says that in that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, but they're not getting in the kingdom. He says, it's very interesting, just before he was crucified, he looked at his disciples and he said, I'm not going to drink this cup again until I drink it with you in my kingdom. And he says that there's a huge reversal happening where harlots and, and tax gatherers are getting into the kingdom ahead of the Pharisees. And he also says that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you're not getting into the kingdom. And so you, well, I mean, what do you do with this collage of, of kingdom principles and ideas and thoughts and descriptives? What is the kingdom? Real important for us to understand. Uh, so, again, connect, connect some of the dots with me. The kingdom starts back Genesis 12. That's at least that far. That's way early, the Bible, right? God comes to Abraham, very first Jew. One Jew in the world, he's Abraham. He's really not a blood Jew yet because they're not many, but just because God claims him. And God says this to him. It's the Abrahamic covenant. He says, I will make you into a great nation. That's where this idea of kingdom starts. And I will bless you and make your name great and you'll be a blessing and I'll bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I'll curse and all the people will be blessed through you. And then he comes to Abraham's boy, Isaac, and he says the same thing. And then to his son, Jacob, and he says the same thing. And then when these these Israelites got out of Egypt, they started heading towards the land. And when they took over the land, they, they they got a king, Saul. And they said, now we're a kingdom. And Saul started off right, pretty good. But messed up, caused a lot of pain and hurt for the, 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 the kingdom. Then his son, or his enemy actually, but uh, uh, David, Jesse's son, comes up to be the king. And David started out pretty good. And during David's reign, God comes to him, his prophet, and says, real important, in Second uh, Samuel 7, says, David, you will always have a son reigning over the kingdom. Always. Well, David dies off. Solomon, his boy, comes up and people just think, oh, well, yeah, it's Solomon. It's who he's talking about. And Solomon starts off well. But Solomon doesn't, doesn't end that way, does he? He creates a lot of pain and trouble for the kingdom. Matter of fact, as soon as Solomon dies, there's a civil war. And there's a northern kingdom now and a southern kingdom. Northern kingdom has about 20 kings. All of them are a bad scene. The, the southern kingdom has about 20 kings too. Eh, half and half, halfway decent. But even the halfway decent ones are a mess. 586 B.C., the Babylonians come in, wipe out 
the kingdom. Take them into exile. The kingdom is done. Matter of fact, Israel would never become sovereign again until 1947. And so, so they were allowed to go back to Jerusalem. But from that point on, 586 B.C. until 1947, someone else ruled their land. They did what someone else told them to do. And so they were, they were big question in their mind. What about those promises God made about a kingdom? Is it all done? Is our sinfulness blown it? Have we, we lost it? And the prophets are quick to say, oh, no, 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 no. Isaiah says, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. No, there's going to be a kingdom. Go on. Ezekiel says, I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. There will be one king over all of them, and they will never again be two nations, a north and a south, or be divided into two kingdoms. I'm going to bring them all back together. Daniel says, in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but itself will endure forever. Says he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. But the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. And there's a handful of these passages throughout the Old Testament. So that when you get to the New Testament, Jesus' day, what are people thinking? Well, they're looking for the kingdom. When they're thinking the kingdom, they're thinking God Almighty is going to reign through his David's son, Messiah, the anointed one. He's going to have a leader. He's going to reign. And and all of his ethics are going to be normal. And no one's going to say bad things about him. Everyone's going to worship him. And they're thinking, based on the Old Testament passages, that all the other kingdoms of the world will join us in worshiping our God. And evil will be vanquished and be done away with. This is the kingdom they're looking for. Uh, We see Simeon was in this boat. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. What does that mean? It means he was waiting for the kingdom to be established. Joseph of Arimathea, same thing. Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God. If you were halfway pious, Jewish person, you were waiting for the kingdom to be restored. That's why when Jesus comes on the scene and he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. People are like, are you serious? Is it really near, you think? And then if he did some miracles and he's saying this, they're like, oh man, maybe this, do you think, wow, wow, this is amazing. The kingdom of heaven is near. Wow. This is what they're, 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 they're thinking. Now, Jesus' kingdom kind of runs on two rails. And you don't, don't, this is real important for us when you read scripture, especially the New Testament, to understand this. Because his kingdom, theologians will tell us, is like an already, not yet kind of thing. Okay, so it's, it's, it's already, it, it has happened. We see it in Luke. Once on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, this is on everybody's mind, Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Now, 
again, what are they thinking? They're thinking uh, land and God reigning through his, 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 his Messiah and evil vanquished. And they're looking around going, what? what? But now if Jesus is that anointed one and he's standing looking at you saying the kingdom of God is in your midst, you're going, okay, yeah, I, I guess I guess it is. Uh, the kingdom of God is in our, our midst. Next. Next slide, please. Pilate then went back inside the palace and he summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? And am I a Jew? Or Pilate replied, Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you've done? Jesus said, My kingdom... It's not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you're right in saying I'm a king. In fact, this is the reason I was born and came into the world. Now, you read this and you go, ah, the kingdom is like a spiritual thing. That's what it's. Jesus just changed it. It's just a big spiritual thing. That's what it's about. Not, not really. It, it acts. Jesus had already rose from the dead. He's getting ready to leave. And his disciples corner him. And they asked him, Lord, at this time are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? I mean, they didn't buy this as a spiritual thing. And Jesus here did not say... You guys are misunderstanding the kingdom. Let me explain it to you. No, no, what does he say? It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. He infers, yeah, no, there's, there's going to be a literal, physical kingdom. It's going, to be, it's going to be established. When we pray for his will to be done, his kingdom to come, what he's, he's asking, if you think about this, he's inviting us in on his mission. Because this was Jesus' mission. This was his, what he was supposed to do, right? Bringing the kingdom. He's inviting you and I to be a part of this. Now, it's important that we remember that this is a request. In other words, we're asking God to do this. If the, if the, if the issue is just ignorance, you and I could do it. We could figure out a way to educate people. If the issue was just rationality, well, let's get more apologetic stuff going. But now there's, there's a real enemy at stake here. In 2 Corinthians 4, do I have that one down? The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Listen, I don't want, we don't get into right now all of the... Uh, what's happening on the spiritual arena regarding us, but reality is that it's not just because somebody's stubborn. There's other things going on. And Jesus says, when you, when you pray for my kingdom to come, what we're praying is that it, it expands in our own heart. Because I do, I know. I don't want it to be this way, but I'm sure I have pieces in my heart that I haven't fully yielded. I, I I pray all the time, Lord, would you show me my sin? I, I want to grow. Uh, there are places in our lives where we struggle, where he doesn't have full reign. And so to pray your kingdom come is, God, would you reign in me completely, fully? It's to pray, Lord, in our church, 
Would, would your kingdom come here? Would this be a place where your reign is established and understood? This place on Sunday morning should be a, a spiritual fruit fest, shouldn't it? Can you imagine? People walk in and all the fruit of the Spirit is, is blossoming huge. All evil has been vanquished as far as motivations, as far as words, as far as thoughts. It's gone. It's not here. There's forgiveness. There's grace. There's love. There's truth. Can you imagine if someone walks into that? How different is that from our world? They'd be going, what did I walk into? This is actually why he came up with the idea of the church and the people of God in the Old Testament. It's not because they needed a club or because he just wanted them to go to heaven one day. In the Old Testament, he brought his people together so that his norms and ethics would be practiced there, not what was outside, that he would be worshipped there purely. And so that the world might know when they see Israel that there is a God. That's why he created us. So we pray, oh Lord, may your kingdom come. When we see stuff going on in the church that ought not to be going on in the church, we've got to pray, God, would you do this? It's not, we got our job to do, but would you do this? Uh, it's the world. When we look at the headlines and we see another war, and we see more people getting hurt. And we see parents doing horrific things to children. How unnatural is that? We see par- children doing horrific things to their parents. And uh, mean people seem to have the reins in this world. And we say, oh, Lord, would your kingdom come? Praying, when we pray for the kingdom to come. We pray for us, our church, our world. Uh, and it's that present idea. But we're also praying for it in the future idea. Because there is a future part of the kingdom. In John 14, Jesus says, Don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If that were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know, the very last verse of the New Testament, I love this. He who testifies to these things says, that's Jesus, yes, I'm coming soon. And then John ends with this. It's a prayer. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The last words of the New Testament are a prayer for his kingdom to come. May you come back. So when we're praying for thy kingdom come, we just got to think about it because we got to ask, ask ourselves, do we really want his kingdom to come? Do we really want him to return? Or maybe not yet. Let me get married first. You know, let me finish school. Let me get my school. Let me get my kids. Let me live. But when my life really starts falling apart, then you can come, Lord. I'd like it then. But see, right now, Jesus says, no, we have such a kingdom mindset. We're saying, yes, please come back now. First um, Thessalonians. Jesus is talking to, uh, Paul's talking to the church at Thessalonica. I don't think I have this one on the screen. But as he's talking to these guys, he's saying that you have achieved maturity because you wait for the return of the Lord Jesus. When I was at at, uh, Appleton, 88, I guess, Single youth pastor, small church. My parents had just moved to uh, Tennessee, Memphis area. It's about a 12-hour drive. I left Appleton at about uh, 2 or 3 in the afternoon to make the drive. I got into my parents' house around whatever it is, 3 or 4 in the morning. 
Everyone's sleeping, of course, as I walk in their house. Uh, but my littlest brother, Peter, comes walking into the, the kitchen, kind of sashaying like he's been on that. Be, oh, oh, hi, Mark. How are you? And he says, waited up for you. And I thought, you know, all night, Peter has been waiting for me. He's been looking at his clock. He's been thinking about my getting here. Maybe he's been praying. I don't know that I would come, but uh, I'd be here safely. But he's been waiting. He's been thinking. Every sound he heard, he was looking out the window. Is that him? The Thessalonian church waiting up for Jesus. And I just wonder for us, I wonder for me. You know, there are over twice as many verses that talk about Jesus' second coming than his first coming. And you say, you know, am I waiting up for Jesus? Am I longing for him to come? Am I hoping and praying that he would come, not just to get me out of a mess, but that his kingdom would be built? Uh, we say that, you know, you know um, when we pray for his kingdom to come, his will to be done, we're praying for present for his church's boundaries of his kingdom to be expanded, and me and this church in the world, we're praying that he would actually come back and set up his, his kingdom, the final kingdom. But that begs a question here, uh, one that, that we don't always like to address. I've heard it, maybe you've heard it. Oh, you Christians like to tag on that if it be your will line. Because that way you can continue to play your prayer games. Because see, whatever answer you get, you're going to get the answer, right? You, you prayed for this, but if it be your will. So it doesn't matter what happens, you're still going to say God answered. I see how this works. And it pushes Christians often into the corner of unanswered prayer. If you, do you know anybody, if you've known anybody, maybe yourself, that's taken a backseat spiritually because of unanswered prayer. And you say, well... How do I square this unanswered prayer thing in my life? Uh, how does that work? Well, uh, Bill Heibel's book, Too Busy Not to Pray, he mentions some things. Let me just run them down real quick because I think it's, it's helpful. So sometimes uh, the request is wrong. Sometimes the request is just wrong, and so God says no. God has to say no. The request is wrong. Uh, Atlantic Monthly 1994 told us what we already know, that our children are not tabula rasas, that they have, according to the Atlantic Monthly, at least three different personalities. You've got some kids who are anxious types. They're just anxious. If they see conflict, you know what? They're going the other way. Anxious types. I know many, most of us adults are kind of this. These things fit for us as well. Anxious types. And then there's aggressive types. If they see conflict, you know they're kind of drawn to it. You have any children like this? They're going to draw to it because it's competition. They're going to win. They're going to. They're drawn to it. And then you've got laid back types. And they never see conflict because ah, say case, okay, sarah, sarah, Now every one of those kids, when they talk to their parents and ask them for things, they're going to ask them for things that are comfortable for who they are. Uh, they're going to want things. This person, the anxious kid, is going to say, "Please, mom and dad, never put me in a situation where I've got to face conflict." Because I just please don't let me do that. Please don't let me do that. But a wise, loving parent knows. This kid is going to get into marriage and friendships and work and conflict is going to be everywhere. And if I just give him what he wants now and I don't teach him how to deal with it, I don't push him out into uncomfortable situations, I'm going to hang this kid. 
And the person that is always after the, you know, their aggressive personality, the wise parent pulls them back. And doesn't say, well, I'm just too tired. I'm just going to let him go. No, no. Fights to pull him back and say, you have got to let someone else go first. Someone else go. You, it's okay to lose. It's, they don't like that. It feels very uncomfortable. The other person, sometimes you just need to light a fire under them, don't you? And say, you know what? You have got to think this is an issue. Or you need to chill. You need to move here. Likewise with us, we ask God for that which is comfortable for us. I've got my lenses, you've got your lenses based on my, my makeup and my gifting and my experience and the way I was raised and everything else. I, I, I've got my lenses and so do you. And we ask for God things based on, on that, things that will be comfortable for us. And God, like the good parent, says, if I give you that, it's going to hang you down the road. Yeah, I, I can't. And any of you semi-Christian country western people, you, you, you are, perhaps you're familiar with Garth Brooks' song, Unanswered Prayer. Are you familiar with this? Maybe not, hope not, but either way, Garth Brooks' Unanswered Prayer. What, what Garth writes about in his song is he went to a football game on a Friday night. You know, these country western songs are the same. He goes to his football game on a Friday night, and, and uh, he meets an old, his old girlfriend from high school. And as he sees her, he just remembers. He's got his wife with him, but he sees this girl and he just remembers. Boy, he prayed for her and he asked, Oh God, would you give me her as my wife? And if you just give me her, I won't pray for anything else. Lord, I just, could you just please do this one thing for me? And as he looked at her and he looked at his wife and he looked at her, he kicks into the chorus of his song and he thanks God for unanswered prayer. He says, oh, thank you, God, that you heard my thing. You didn't give me what I was looking for. You gave me something so much better. Uh, sometimes a request is just wrong. And God says, no, no. Now, sometimes we are wrong. The request may be fine, but we are wrong. And so God says, grow. Uh, well, I remember when I was earlier on in my marriage, I used to always pray for Teresa that she would be godly. I, I still do. But there's a difference. When when Earlier on, see, I prayed that she would be godly because obviously what that meant is she would see life through my eyes, right? If she was godly, then she would just submit to me and she would be kind and she would be nice and we would have the same values and she would always, she would just kind of feed my dysfunction. See, that's what I was kind of hoping. Is this if Teresa was just godly? No, is there anything wrong with that request that my wife is godly? That's a good request. But I don't know if Teresa needed to grow, but I certainly needed to grow. Often with this request, Lord, change him, change her, change them, it really is not necessarily because we're caring for him or her or them as much as it's going to make our life a lot easier. And God says, there's something wrong in your heart, Mark, that we need to fix here. Psalm 66, 18 says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord's just not going to hear me. If you think you can live however you want to live and go to him. If you could think, think you can ask him, you can get to that fourth petition and ask him for that without going through the third petition. Your will be done. Your kingdom come. Ah, it doesn't work that way. Uh, Proverbs 28. If anyone turns a deaf ear to my instruction, even their prayers are detestable. I don't have time to check out God's word. I just don't have time. But I'm going to pray for a lot of stuff. I don't know if it works that way. I don't want his will, thy will, I want my will. God says, ah, ah, 
that's not that's not the way we're we're, we're going to work with this. Sometimes our, our prayers are wrong and God says no. Sometimes we're wrong and God says grow. Sometimes the timing is wrong. And God says, slow, the timing's wrong. And we think about Abraham. Poor guy had to wait till he was 99 before he could have a kid. We think about Joseph. Remember, he talks to the uh, uh, butler and he says, you're going to get back in, in, in Pharaoh's palace. And when you do, just would you remember me? Because I don't want to be in here. And of course, he forgets. And Joseph's got to wait two more years in prison. How about, how about David? He wanted to see the temple built. He wasted, he wasted, he waited his whole life waiting to see it built. He still didn't get to see it. It got built right when he, when he left. You got Moses who, who wanted to deliver. I think he wanted to deliver Israel. But he used his own hands to do it initially. He killed the Egyptian. And God said, oh, out in the desert for 40 years? I've got something i got to do in your, your, your heart, uh, Moses. He had to wait 40 years. I think of uh, Israel. They were, had these promises by God to have the Holy Land, their own land. But they're hanging out in Egypt. And don't you, you love this in Exodus, beginning of part of Exodus, where God comes to Moses and says, you know, I've heard my people's cries in, in, in Egypt. If I'm Moses, I'm saying, uh, where have you been? They've been crying for hundreds of years. You're just getting around to hearing it. Uh, but for God's timing, the Israelites, two things. We don't always know why God says wait. But on this one, we know some ideas. First of all, Israel, uh, if they would have tried to take on Canaan and do all the fighting that they needed to fight when they were only 70 people strong, they would have got massacred. They had to be a place where they could grow to their own nation. But then there's another reason that we can see here, and, and we see this in Genesis 15. Now, keep in mind as we read this, that... This God is speaking to Abraham hundreds of years before his ancestors are going to end up in Egypt. But he's telling the future a little bit. He says, know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. And they'll be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. And afterward they will come out with great possessions. Next slide. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried, buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. Why? For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. This is, if I was an Israelite, I'm thinking all about me. I need to be in the land. Come on, let's get in the land. And God is saying, okay, your, your answer to your prayer is going to affect other people. And these other people who are occupying your land right now, Scripture lets us know that they're being bumped out because of judgment. And God's saying, they haven't done anything bad enough yet to be bumped out. So, so, so sometimes we pray, it's all about me. God says, you know what? It's going to affect a lot of other people and I've got other things going on. And so he says, the timing, the prayer request, not a bad prayer request, but the timing isn't right. You need to go slow. And then sometimes when he, we, we ask for things, we just don't know the reason why God uh, doesn't respond. Some prayer requests are made. They're good prayer requests. are made by uh, good people. No one's perfect, but trying. And God says, no, no. What we need to understand is this 
principle that Jesus is talking about where he says you have to pray. Before you ask for things, you have to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done. This was not this religious platitude for Jesus. This was not something out of his theology book. This was a principle that he lived and died by. Because he knew when he told them this is how you got to pray, that there will be a day down the road when he's praying that in Matthew 27. 26, he says, going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed. It's in Gethsemane. My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Now, this prayer, I think we could all agree that there was never anybody more godly praying There was never anybody who prayed more desperately or with passion because Scripture is going to let us know that when he prayed this, he sweated drops of blood. I've I've prayed passionately. I don't think I've ever prayed that passionately. There's been nobody who prayed with more of a discerning heart than Jesus. But when he got up off his knees, he didn't have the answer that he was looking for. He had the strength that he needed, though. And can you imagine for just a moment... What would have happened if God the Father would have said, yeah, you don't have to die? That unanswered prayer equaled the salvation of the world. And you don't pretend to know all the the whys and all the the pain, but I do know that the ultimate answer to every unanswered prayer prayed in anguish is a sin-soaked 2,000-year-old Roman cross that's been drenched with the blood of Jesus. You get the impression from Jesus when he said this in Matthew 6, lived it out all the way to Matthew 26, that uh, he wasn't just reserved. Nevertheless, your will be done. He wanted his will to be done. That was number one. That was what it was about. And when you and I pray, so when we come to our Father, not based on my performance, my Father, we come conscious of who He is and what He's about. And before we get to our requests, we stop and we abandon our agendas and we let Him know on the front end, Lord, more than anything else, what I want is I want Your kingdom to come in me, in my, my church, in this world, to come back to earth. I want Your will to be done. I want to be living out Your will. More than anything else. And if that includes my daily bread, great. And if it doesn't, that's great. That's what I, that's what I want. You can imagine if there are a group of people who understand prayer and pray like that on a regular basis, what in the world might he do? I would pray that we would be such a place. Would you pray with me? Lord, I am thankful that there are times in my life, in our lives, when you allow us to see down the road a little bit why you answered as you did. Thank, thanking you, God, for unanswered prayers. And maybe changing things up and doing them just a little bit different or coming through the back door or just doing it in a way we wouldn't have expected. But always good. Lord, for those times when we don't understand. And you know such times (laughs) for God to have experienced unanswered prayer you know 
Lord, would you bring a comfort? Would you remind us, myself and my brothers and sisters here, of the truth of who you are, just your grace and your strength and your love and your wisdom. Would you build in all of us, Lord, a confidence in who you are and what you're about? And I do pray, God, would you remind us not to be living on this horizontal plane. Would you remind us, God, to not uh, be neglecting our relationship with you, your kingdom, your will, I would ask they would be done in our lives. They'd be done in your church here. And then God, however you could use us to see them brought about here in Erie in this world, we would ask that would be so. Now I pray, Lord, you'd go with us back into our our works and our worlds that you have uh, placed us. God, as we connect with you on that vertical plane, may people recognize and know that there is a God in heaven. May they long for him. I pray, Lord, you'd use us even this week in that manner, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a good rest of the day.